0: Colossians 2, and I'll start here at verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Lord God, as we now turn to the word, we pray for your spirit to to give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Pray for wisdom to bring it faithfully. I pray that you would give us discernment to hear it with a judicious and wise ear and heart and mind. And I pray in all things that your name is glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning's text is verses 11 and 12. "...in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him, through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead." Now, um, baptism gets mentioned, but the thrust of this passage is largely about what the circumcision of the Old Testament and how it relates to the New Testament, and Paul weaves that together with baptism And so it may look like it's a sermon more on circumcision than on baptism, but you'll see these threads all kind of coming together. I have um, three points I want to draw out from the text this morning. They are these. First of all, the roots of circumcision. Secondly, the fulfillment of circumcision. And thirdly, the outcome of circumcision. And so those are the three points. So first of all, the roots of circumcision... Among other things, in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul addresses Judaizers, and Judaizers are those who were demanding of Christians a rigorous adherence to the Mosaic Law. And particularly what the Apostle Paul addresses here is the question of circumcision, ought Christians to be circumcised? And Paul will address that by talking about how that relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. Circumcision has its roots in Genesis when God covenants with Abraham and we see it introduced as a covenant sign between Abraham and God as a sign and seal of the covenant. It signifies a covenantal bond, which is a formal relationship between a higher and a lesser, we would call those a vassal and a sovereign. It was the sign that indicated the need of cleansing. Cutting off of the foreskin indicated the need for purification between a holy God and the unholy people who would need to be purified from their sin. For Israel, it was done to every male child, which symbolizes that the transmission of the fallen nature in Adam would be transmitted to every generation. And therefore, every generation that was Set apart to God, needed to have the males circumcised. Circumcision was a seal, which is a vivid, permanent mark that attested that they were members of the covenant community. And furthermore, we know that circumcision was a bloody act, signifying that by the shedding of blood, the sinful nature had to be cut off. Now we know from Israel's history that Israel stubbornly broke covenant. Not once, not twice, many times. And so in Deuteronomy 10, which is kind of the second giving of the law, Moses gives a summary of the core obligations of God's covenant with his people. And he says this to them. He says, and now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, And to serve the Lord thy God, and notice this, with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Notice that at the core of the covenant is the obligation of the people to love God. That's the core obligation, and from that flows everything else, doesn't it? And it can only be done, we will see, when something else has happened, because as we saw circumcision, signifies the cutting off of sins. That cutting off has to take place before love of God can actually take place. And so Moses, right after this, picks up in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 10, he says this, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. So Israel, fast forward, gets the land the kingship, the rule, the kingdom. And what do we see in the period of the kings? Division, idolatry, judgment. And in Jeremiah 4.4, just before they go into Babylon in exile, what does God say again? He says this, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskin of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. And so what we see, just stepping back here, is that physical circumcision in the Old Covenant pointed to the need of a spiritual inward circumcision. And when God in Deuteronomy commands it, what does it show? We can't do it. Who can circumcise their heart? No human being can do that. And so what Israel's need reflects is the need of all of humanity. Because Israel was to be a light to the nations. And they messed up because their hearts weren't circumcised. And how we know that hearts need to be circumcised is we realize that every time we bring the gospel to an unbeliever, every time we share the gospel with children, and we realize that um, as we reach the gospel to them, they don't always take it. And many, many will reject the gospel Have you tried to maybe recently share the gospel with a friend, a neighbor, a child? You can't make them believe, can you? Because heart circumcision, the Bible says, is what's needed. An uncircumcised heart, the Bible says, is stony to the things of God. It's under the curse of sin. And perhaps you're sitting this morning listening. And maybe you have a stony heart to the things of God. You go to church, but it's not landing You're not receiving it by faith. Now, you might be thinking, well, I'm a pretty upstanding person, you know, actually. I I treat my neighbors well. I, I don't defraud others. I've kept my job for years. I try my best at school, perhaps, you think. In fact, I attend church like clockwork. Every week I'm there. I read my Bible every time after dinner. So, yeah, I might make some mistakes. But I'm a pretty decent guy. That's how so often we think of ourselves. The simple fact is, the Bible says that we have to stop comparing ourselves across horizontally, as we're so prone to do, and compare ourselves, look upward to the holy God, whose holiness is impeccable. God is without the slightest imperfection. In fact, in Habakkuk 1 verse 3, it says this. The prophet says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. God's Glory is the beginning of all renovation is the beginning of understanding not only God but ourselves as well it is a supreme glory it is an immeasurable glory it is a constant glory and it shines with a spotless radiance which means that any dismissal or discounting of the holiness Of God and his glory. Is really the first indication. Of how sinful we really are. And that is why Paul in the text. Speaks of the putting off of the body. Notice that in the text. The body of the sins of the flesh. Because the entire being. The entire body as it were is corrupted. And is deeply stained with sin. And that's why Paul talks that way. Have we realized that I I am the one that needs deliverance from myself. In myself, outside of Christ, I am full of cancer, the cancer of sin. Which brings me to the second point, which is the fulfillment of circumcision. Because God, again in Deuteronomy, where He says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, that's chapter 10. In chapter 30, when Moses is about to die, He says, in one of his last words, he says this, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. Notice how he brings the two together. Remember, the command was love the Lord, circumcise your heart. They can't. And now God says, I will do it to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And that is the reality that Paul picks up in this letter to the Colossians. When he says, in whom ye were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And therefore, stepping back to baptism for a second, therefore circumcision is not replaced by baptism as a covenant sign. Circumcision is fulfilled in heart circumcision. Something God does. And this is precisely why Christians don't need physical circumcision because Christians have the real spiritual fulfillment. For the believer, for any one of us who is in Christ, we have a love for God that is alive because an internal work of grace was done in us. Now we have to be careful here because often our feelings get confused with our hearts. Perhaps you're this way. You feel happy, and you think, oh, surely, now I'm right with God. You feel depressed, and we think, well, God must be ignoring us, and he hates me. We feel miserable, and you think, God is against me. And so we start to judge everything by our feelings. We're so prone to do that. And perhaps you've had a very rough week. Perhaps difficult changes are taking place in your life, right now. And you were so angry with someone this week. And now you're shackled with the guilt of that anger. You see, feelings come and go, don't they? But a new heart that God has brought and has internally done will always beat. It will always be alive. Where once it was dead, now it is alive in Jesus Christ, where once it was unresponsive to the things of God, now it has a living impulse. It wants to serve him. It wants to love him. And so don't get betrayed by your feelings. They vacillate. They go up and down. But a love for God that's internal, that's constant, because that's God-wrought. And that's why in the text here, it says, in whom also ye are circumcised. The tense here is in the aorist in the Greek, which means it's a completed action. It's a once-for-all thing. For the Christian, new affections are the fruit of this great change. New longings for holiness and a holy war against sin has now begun. And most of all for the Christian, as we saw what God does, is a deep, deep love for God. And stepping back from this for a second, this is the reality for every true Christian. Of necessity, every Christian has had the internal circumcision of the heart. And that is why all believers are sensitive to the word of God. That is why, as the word is administered to believers the believers realize it is the very word of the God they love. And it'll take root. And that's why the Apostle Peter says, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Because believers want to take it in. And that is why at the core of all effective ministry is a dependence upon heart circumcision. And that is why biblical counseling always begins with the need to be born again. Because we're not talking about moral renovation. We are talking about an inward change that God brings. And that is why in the text it says, you were circumcised by the circumcision made without hands. Because to be dependent on anything done by hands, by us, doesn't work. It is to trust in our own efforts and our own achievements. And that's again, looking at yourself. And therefore the made without hands refers to an act that is accomplished completely, 100% independent of man. We have nothing to do with heart circumcision. It is a work of sovereign grace alone. And just like outward circumcision was a seal for the Israelites, a permanent mark that would remind every Jewish man that he was a member of the covenant and his family was, With all of the promises and all of the obligations that came with that seal. So profound, the profound teaching of the New Testament is that members of the New Covenant also receive with heart circumcision a seal. Now what is that seal in the New Testament? It's not water baptism. It's not that It cannot be, because this was a circumcision made without hands, and water baptism includes people. This is spiritual, not physical, and therefore the seal in the New Testament has to be internal to correspond with the internal reality. So what's the seal? Does the Bible tell us? It does tell us, doesn't it? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Please turn there with me, please. Ephesians 1.13, where it says this, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, and here it is, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit that has effected that heart circumcision is the very one who leaves himself as the permanent seal in the believer. He is the seal. And that is why believers can never fall away. Because they have the guaranteed internal operation of God. And he will always be there for the believer. Now notice in the text, back to Colossians It says, in whom ye are circumcised. Who's the in whom in the text? It's Christ, isn't it? Christ is thick in this book. I love the letter of Colossians because it is so Christocentric. All of this is in Jesus Christ. In Christ we belong to the new covenant. And as Paul would later or earlier write to the Galatians, he says this. And this relates back to Abraham because this is covenant continuity. He says, and if ye be Christ's, and notice these words, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And this is precisely why nobody is physically born into the new covenant. The very nature of the new covenant is internal. It is a people circumcised of heart. People are born not into the bloodlines of Abraham, but they are new born into the faith of Abraham. And so in Christ, that great phrase in whom means so much. For the believer, it means I am free from the feeble crutches of depending on myself. I can throw any dependence on myself away because that is just a lame thing to depend on. I don't have to depend on my merits for God's favors. I don't have to make up for my failures that I did today or yesterday or this past week. I can joyfully abandon any dependence upon my emotions, upon my intellect, upon my religious zeal, I can look away 100% from myself and solely look to Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. I can look to his provision, his merits, and his powerful hand to save me. Is that you? Is that you? And then leaning on his provision, as he does for the believer. The spirit who is in us will inwardly work, and from that inward work, outward change comes, doesn't it? It is the spirit, that inward seal, that gently draws the transformed sinner to her Savior over and over, and when we drift, and when we wander, and we're like sheep going astray again, it is the Spirit that draws us back to gaze on the loveliness of Jesus Christ. And as the Spirit does that, the believer realizes more and more the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, to the church. To the church, Christ is not just a historical figure. Jesus Christ to the church is not some prop that we can lean on. No, for the church, Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure. He is all things to the church. And perhaps, the grind of life, the broken relationships, the persistent enemies of pride and selfishness are beating down on you. Oh, don't fix your gaze at the failures. Look. Look unto me, Jesus says. He is the one we must gaze upon. How can we turn our backs away from him who unlocked heaven's doors so freely for us? Will that sin that is vying for your heart not lose its appeal as you meditate on the precious blood of Jesus Christ who appeased the wrath of God for us? It will. Meditating on the cross of Christ makes sin look grosser and God appear holier as he is, and Christ altogether more lovely. That's why we must meditate on him. And that is why we sing these hymns over and over and over again, like not what my hands have done. In whom, in this little phrase, in whom means we look to Jesus Christ, who is our shepherd in Christ are the unfathomable gifts of mercies and fountains of grace that will always be giving and never taking. He's always giving and we ascribe glory to God, but we don't make him more glorious. He is infinitely glorious in himself. So, which leads us back to the text where it says in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Now, in that little word in putting off is so rare in the Greek that it's hundreds of years later that it finally gets used in other Greek literature. It's so rare. So Paul probably made this up, or no one hardly used it. So the entire body of sin is put off. So what that means is cast from the believer, cut off and thrown away, as it were, is the very thing that caused Israel to break covenant. This is important, Because if that wasn't cast off, we would be like Israel. And we would break covenant and go into eternal exile. So the very source and the spring of our corrupt nature, the Bible says, is vitally cut off, cast aside. The Apostle Paul will say exactly almost the identical thing in Romans 6, verse 6 and 7 when he says this. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Notice again, with him. That the body of sin, similar language might be destroyed, that henceforth, so from that time on, we should not serve sin, and then Paul says in Romans, for he that is dead is freed from sin, delivered from it. So what this means for the believer is that the shackles of sin have been vitally severed, The sinner in Jesus Christ has been acquitted in the courts of heaven. And that's exactly what verse 13 and 14 talk about. The acquittal in the courts of heaven. Everything written against the sinner is blotted out. You won't see it anymore. But more than that, it's not just the acquittal. Justification. It is also that the power of sin has been broken in the believer's life. The dominion over us is gone We serve a new master. We love a new sovereign. We worship a new king. As one commentator says about that little phrase, putting off the body of sin, he says, the entire slew which encircles the spirit and enslaves it is rolled off. Newness of life is felt. And the believer walks no longer after the flesh, is no longer carnal or does its deeds. Now, how is this done? How is this done? Paul says it it very clearly. In the circumcision of Christ. So we are circumcised in the circumcision of Christ. What does that mean? That is when Jesus Christ himself was cut off. When he himself died and bore the guilt of our sins. Look back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. I'll start at verse 20. It says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. That's that bondage to sin. Yet now hath he reconciled, and now notice this phrase here, in the body of his flesh through death. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. But do you notice the difference in the phrasing? So verse 22 of chapter 1 speaks of Jesus Christ in the body of his flesh. But look back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, where we're looking at, what's the difference? The difference is the word sins. In the putting off, in verse 11 of the body, of the sins of the flesh. But Christ had no sin in himself. We are the ones that are sinners. And he took it upon himself and then severed it. It was for our treason that Jesus was cut off. And so Peter, in one of his first sermons after he is caught, he says, ye have killed the prince of life. And all of this means that now, for the believer, heaven's gates are flung wide open. And that is wonderful. Bringing me to the third point, the outcome of circumcision. So how is this applied to the believer? The Greek here is unmistakable in verse 12. Buried with him. With him. The Greek word for with is sun. Soon, buried with him, soon with him. Just when, every time you're looking, that's, that word soon is thick in the letter of Colossians. It means union with Christ, being united to him. Union with Christ is the bedrock of all of the benefits of Christ that are accounted to us. They are gushing to us in our union with him. Augustus Strong will write this about union. He says, Christ and the believer have the same life. They are not separated persons linked together by some temporary bond of friendship, as earthly friendships may be. They are united by a tie as close and indissoluble as if the same blood ran in their veins. That is union with Christ. I love the doctrine of union. If you ever want to read books that will warm your heart to Jesus Christ, read books on union. Because everything stems from our being united to Jesus Christ. And that union is what brings us to baptism. Because Paul brings it up here at this point. Buried with him in baptism. The waters of baptism are like words that you can see. When you witness the baptism this morning, you are not going to hear the gospel. You are going to witness the gospel In the very act of baptism. Baptism is like a visible exegesis of the gospel. We see in baptism the inward reality put on display outwardly. The word baptisma in the Greek simply means this. It means to dip, to immerse, or a word we often don't think of, to overwhelm. In ancient times when a ship would sink in the ocean, it would be said to be baptized. It would be overwhelmed by the waters as the waters would conquer that ship, as it were. And so in baptism, the believer visibly puts on display the reality that in Christ they are immersed or submerged into his death. Today, you're going to witness that each person who goes under the cold waters ...symbolizing judgment and cleansing, each one of those has professed a union to Jesus Christ. As you watch them go down, you will see, as it were, the waters conquering its subjects. Now, we have to be careful here. Because baptism in itself has no efficacy. It doesn't do anything, but it points 100% to Jesus Christ to whom the Spirit unites us. It is not, as some would teach, by the act of being baptized, but by the Spirit that we participate in Christ's benefits. And so, again, Galatians, Paul says, as many of you as have been baptized into Jesus Christ, look at this word, have put on Christ. Remember, sin was cast off. Now in Christ, we put on Christ, all that he is. Anyone who is ever saved, throughout all of history, all the way from Adam to the last and final day, anyone who is saved only and ever will be saved by virtue of Jesus Christ. He alone is the author of life. He alone is the savior of the body, because all glory belongs to him. And baptism is then a, cost, a vivid picture of the costly love of Jesus Christ. Who do we baptize then? It's pretty clear at this point. Those who outwardly profess the inward reality of union to Christ. The fruit of heart circumcision. The church baptized in the same way that Jesus did. This is really interesting. Because who did Jesus baptize? Or his disciples? What does it say? Followers. Mathetas in the Greek. It is the baptism of believers. John 4.1 says this. Jesus And made and baptized what? Mathetes. Followers. Disciples. Even in his last commission to the apostles, what does he say? Go into all the world, make disciples, same word, make followers of all nations, baptizing them. And that them refers to the followers. We baptize followers into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now notice, as the text goes on, that he draws the circle out even further, because not only does he say you are united to his death, you are also, it says in the text, united to his resurrection, wherein also ye are risen with him, because death to sin wouldn't be enough. We don't leave people in the water to be overwhelmed. Then we're going to be taking out corpses, aren't we? We don't want to do that. Absolutely not. Because Death in Christ leads to life in Christ. Do you remember that in Deuteronomy, when I cited it earlier, that everybody who is heart-circumcised, it says, will love the Lord and walk in his ways. What does that mean? What does that imply? Life. Life. So here again, you'll see, and it's clear again in the Greek, you'll see that word sun, with, with. You see it in the text, right? Wherein also ye are risen with him. With Christ. Now this, at this point, might be pretty straightforward. And here's where we're going to run into a little bit of a difficulty in the text. Because as you see in the version we're reading, the King James Bible, and many versions, it says in the text, Wherein also ye are risen with him. The Greek and ha can also mean in whom. It can be in which. Or in whom? And that gets confusing. In fact, the Geneva Bible, before the King James, says it this way In that ye are buried with him through baptism, and then watch, in whom ye are also risen up together through the faith of the operation of God which raised him from the dead. The question is, to what is Paul applying the risenness, the being risen with? Is he applying it to baptism, or is he applying it to Christ? That's a big question. It's an important question. And I am persuaded, personally, that the in whom, the Geneva Bible reading, is the correct one. And I'll tell you why. It is because Paul's continual focus has been the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. In him dwelleth all the fullness. Verse 10, year complete in him. Verse 11, in whom also. And then also in verse 11, in the circumcision of Christ. And so verse 12, I believe, also should be translated consistently with Paul's pattern as in whom, in Christ. And notice also in the text, the word also. In whom also, which is a break in the grammar, which pushes the word baptism back. To what came before it. Which would be burial. And that breaks the resurrection side. And links it back to Christ Jesus. Now this is maybe a little bit confusing. But I thought it's important to bring out. Because again Paul is all about Jesus Christ. He's not about the act. He's about Christ. What does this mean? This means. That the first great benefit. Received. In union with Christ, first of all, is circumcision. A spiritual regeneration which expresses itself as cutting and dying. Baptism. Being buried into his death. And the second great benefit of these things, of being united to Christ, is a faith that expresses trust in Jesus Christ. The reason is this. In this text, and it's very clear in the Greek, baptism and faith are instruments. The focus is Jesus. And so baptism is just the instrument by which a person shows, and faith is an instrument by which he embraces the risen Christ. This might be confusing. Why does Paul speak this way? Why does he separate baptism and faith this way? Because we know in Romans he links baptism with resurrection. So what's he doing here? What what questions can we raise from this? One theologian said it this way. In the early church, and this is really, really important for us to remember, when someone was converted to Jesus Christ, they would be joined to everything, and, and everything, all the instruments would happen at the same time. It was known as conversion initiation. That's what this theologian calls it. Because in the early church, a believer would show repentance would get baptized in water. The spirit would come into him and faith would be expressed. They are all components of one unified experience in Jesus Christ, which we simply call conversion. They all come together. And because baptism is most often expressed in the Bible as a sign of washing, right? Water cleanses. Therefore, Paul links it with burial. In fact, in the book of Acts, chapter 22, verse 16, listen carefully to this. It says, arise and be baptized, and then notice this, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And that is the link that the New Testament most clearly showed with baptism, the cleansing, the dying, and faith most clearly linked with the life that followed. Because faith, as you look back in the text, what does faith get linked with? Faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. What is faith? To who is faith? To whom is it related? To God. It is to him, right? The person looks to Christ who is severed, but is looking to God to do all these things. And in fact, the word operation is the word energia. What does that sound like? Energy. It means the divine power that comes from God alone. And faith knows that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that takes the sinner and applies him to Jesus Christ, unites him to Jesus Christ. And so it is equally at work in Christ's resurrection as in the believer's resurrection. Faith, the Puritan Thomas Watson says this, Faith knows that there are no impossibilities with God and will trust him where it cannot trace him. All of this means that for the believer, there is no greater power. There is no more decisive victory. There are no greater treasures to be had and then being united to Jesus Christ and all that He is. And that is why in verse 10, Paul already gave his summary and ye are complete in Him. Now, in closing, perhaps the winds of adversity are howling in your life. Perhaps you're plagued this morning by discouragement, fear, and despair. Maybe indwelling sin is tearing you apart at the seams. You know what? For the believer, the Apostle Paul takes this theology of union, death, and new life, and he weaves it together into the practical applications of how to now live. Look ahead with me to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 1. Notice the language. If ye be then risen with Christ, there's our union. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And now notice, this This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear With him. Again, union. Look at all that union language in glory. And notice this from all of that gazing to my life being protected in Jesus Christ, he says in verse 5 Mortify therefore your members on earth. The only way to slay sin on earth is by gazing at your union in Jesus Christ and all that he is. And look ahead again to verses 9 and 10. He says, lie not one to another. Look at what is grounding. Seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. There's the severing, the circumcision. And have put on the new man. There's the new life which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. That's the beauty. A new heart in Jesus Christ looks upward to Jesus. It lives in the freedom of forgiven sins. It fights in the security of Christ's resurrected life. Now, if you set, if you and I set our affections, our minds on those things, you will slay impatience. It will overwhelm a jealous mindset or a mindset of entitlement. Fears and despairs that you maybe have today will be overwhelmed in Christ's victory. Sets your mind on things above. In growing, you need to be looking. Looking at Jesus. So in short, a summary of the whole thing is really simple. In Christ, you are really alive. The Apostle Paul wrote this. And he said, I count all things but dung that I may win Christ. For the Apostle Paul, this was nothing more than life, hope, triumph, victory, and everything. Are you united to Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the word, precious word that speaks of Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. I pray this morning as we have meditated on the, the benefits of Christ and we will witness baptism, that we will glorify you, recognizing what you have done. People dying and rising with him. In Jesus' great name, amen.